man started to live again. We'd like to say we appreciate those that are here this morning. Thank God for you. We pray that you would enjoy yourself. Blessings of the Lord and give you a special invitation to come as often as you can. Has everybody got it? Night or 28th chapter of Matthew 1 to 15th verse. I'm going to read the first verse and have you to read the ones, one following that, all right? In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall you see him, lo, I have told you. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. They came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and chewed into the chief priest all the things that were done. Saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. So they took the money and did as they were taught. Now this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. All right. <laughs> we got one extra verse. There shouldn't be anything wrong with that, is there? <laughs> that climax probably one of the greatest miracles that has ever happened or ever will happen when Jesus rose again from the dead. Christianity, of course, you all know that, Christianity is based on the fact that he not only died, but he rose again. Yes. And without his resurrection, of course, there would be no salvation and there would be no life. And so all efforts have been made to disprove the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear all types of things, and of course the first thing you heard was the Jews trying to tell them to pay the soldiers to money to say that somebody stole him away. And, of course, that was utterly impossible. As, as secure as he was, there had been no way that no one could have, anyone could have stolen him away. Now, I made a statement. I hadn't planned on uh, answering this today, but uh, I made a statement, and somebody asked me if I would 
detail my reasons for that statement. And so I'm going to give you my reasons for the statement that I made, and then I'm going to leave it with you. Is that all right? I made a statement that if you wanted to believe that Jesus died on Friday and rose on Sunday, that was fine with me, but I can't handle that. Because that's one of the things, of all the things, in my opinion, and all the slick things that the devil has done to void the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the Messiah has been this one thing. Somebody said, well, what difference does it make? To me, it makes plenty of difference simply because Jesus based his whole claims of being the Messiah of the promised one of being in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And, of course, if you can keep him or get him out quicker than that or leave him in longer than that, of course, it disproves the claims that he is the Messiah, regardless of whether we accept it or whether we don't. So as far as I am concerned, and I'm going to go over this real carefully, and you just agree or disagree, but I'm going to answer the question and give you my belief as to why Jesus was not crucified on Friday. He was actually crucified on a Wednesday. He was put in the grave Wednesday, just before sunset, and was resurrected Saturday at sunset. And the reason that the church is mistaken Friday is the day of the crucifixion is because the scripture mentions the Sabbath, and they assume that it's speaking of the regular Jewish Sabbath. And when you look at that, there's no indication in the Bible that he was buried Friday at sunset. If that was the case, he would have been in the grave only one day and one night. And that being the case, he would have proved his own words untrue, and he would have negated the proof of his Messiahship, the proof that he himself uh, said would be. Now, when they was asking him questions concerning who he was, and the Jews said, we want a sign. The Jews are sign people. They like signs. They still do. When you go over there, they're still looking for signs and so on. So they said, give us a sign. And, of course, he had raised the dead and... Uh, he had healed the sick and almost anything imaginable he had done. But Jesus then in Matthew about the 12th chapter simply says, I'm not going to give you any sign but one. Just one sign is all I'm going to give you. And he says, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we have confusion concerning the Sabbath. Now, in John 19 and 31, it says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, the special Sabbath high day was actually the Passover. And we can see that is proven in Matthew 26, 18, and 19, where it said, And he said, Go unto the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them and made ready the Passover. 
Now, the preparation day spoken in John 19.31 was from Tuesday sunset to Wednesday sunset, and the next day was a high day, which was a special Sabbath for the Passover feast. It was not. Again, it was not the ordinary weekly Sabbath, which was two days later. Now, it talks about in Leviticus 23, 6, and 11, and I might just take some time to find out and read to you concerning the high days in, uh, on, on the Sabbath. 23, 6, and 11, and Jesus sets this off as a feast, and on the 15th day of the same month is a feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days shall you, must you eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall do no surveilled work therein. In other words, this was the beginning. This was the high day. You notice Matthew said that's what it was. He distinguished that from the, from the original weekly Sabbath. And Luke 9.22 says, Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. Be raised the third day. Now, this phase in the Scripture, third day, means as far as I'm concerned that Jesus was dead three full days and three full nights. You can find in the Bible what Jesus considers a day. He said himself, is there not 24 hours in a day? So doing all that, and that's our reason for believing that when the days and nights are both mentioned, then it can't be just parts of three days or parts of three nights. You can find that if you want to read it or jot it down. I'll not take time to read it this morning. And Esther talks about it, and 1 Samuel talks about it, and Revelations talks about it. So the Jews understood Christ to mean after three days or three full days and three full nights, then he would raise again. And so they had the soldiers and gave them orders to guard the tomb at least that long. Now we're going to get into some customs, Eastern customs. And it was a custom to mourn for the dead three full days and nights. And these are called the days of weeping, which was followed by four days of lamentation. And that makes seven days. You'll find this in Genesis and 1 Samuel and in Job. And according to the rabbinical idea, the spirit wandered about the sepulcher for three days, hoping to re-enter the body, but when corruption set in, the spirit left. That was believed to be the fourth day when the loud lamentations began, so that the, so that the spirit was leaving, uh, no chance of ending the body again. And so I let you know why they said on the fourth day that Lazarus would stink, that those things are in the Bible. And also when we read Acts twenty or two and twenty seven. Uh, David says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So the body of Jesus never saw corruption. Started in the, in the east, of course, corruption sets in rather quickly. They consider after the fourth day. And also we have a, a Jewish historian and traveler, Herodotus, and he states that the embalming process was it did not take place until after three days, and that's when the spirit was supposed to be gone. They dared not, would not embalm, and that's why the ladies came after the three days. They would not embalm because they still considered that the spirit was still there. And there's a possibility 
uh, of a resurrection. And that, again, is why the women took spices to anoint the body of Jesus or to embalm it uh, for its burial. And they never accepted evidence. The Jews didn't, and they still don't, uh, or uh, evidence of identification of a dead body after three days because they claimed corruption had set in and they can't identify them. So the period of three full days and three full nights ought to erase all doubt that the death was actually taking place. It ought to squelch all suggestions that Christ might have been in a trance. There's no way he could have. The Jews would legally have to conclude that death, uh, should he remain three days and three nights, that death would actually take place. Now you want to follow this. The order of the events is this. They ate the Passover on Tuesday evening. Find that in Matthew 26 and 20. Included at this time was foot washing, of course, and the Lord's Supper and the announcement of the betrayal and the making of a new covenant. You'll find that in Matthew 26, 21 to 29. After this, then, they departed from the upper room. They started on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane and its agony, also recorded in 26th chapter of Matthew. Then Jesus was betrayed early Tuesday morning. His trial lasted throughout Tuesday night early Wednesday morning. That's still in Matthew 26th chapter, beginning at the 27th chapter. And then our Master was crucified about 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning, and at 12 o'clock noon, darkness filled the land, and it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the time of the evening sacrifice, which correlates with the Scripture that Jesus actually died, or he dismissed his spirit. You know, he had said before, no man taketh my life from me, I lay it down. There's no way that humanity could have taken the life of Jesus. But he says, I lay it down. He had a reason for that. That was because of you and I this morning. Now, we can eliminate the masses and we can narrow it down to you and I this morning. He saw us lost. He saw us without God and without hope. He saw humanity taken to the grave with no chance of life eternal and life everlasting. All mankind knew was to be born into this world and then to die. Job himself said there's hope of a tree, but what about a man? And until Jesus came, until he fulfilled the plan that he had, until he took his responsibility upon his shoulders, you and I would have no chance of ever looking upon the face of a loved one again, or ever having life beyond this veil of tears. But because of Jesus, because of the Christ of Calvary, he initiated a hope 2,000 years ago that uh, I think the Apostle Paul mentioned it when he said, I won't have you ignorant, brother, of this one thing. I don't want you to sorrow, even as others that have no hope. Accompanying death is always a amount of sorrow. You're going to have that. It's just human nature, and human nature does what it's supposed to do. And Jesus tells us that you are going to have some sorrow, but if we believe in him and trust in him, we're not going to sorrow like others that have no hope, those that don't have any hope. So he said, I have instilled a hope. And because of that, if we could get into the Bible, if there ever was a time, that we ought to get into the Bible and dig into it and search and read of his trial, what the sadistic hands of men did to him, how he suffered and didn't open his mouth, and how they ridiculed him, and how they whipped him, stripes upon his back and lacerated his back until there was not one solid piece of flesh upon his back. 
and weak and dying almost and almost in shock they placed the rugged cross of Calvary it wasn't smooth wood at all it was rugged cross of Calvary hewed out from rough trees placed it upon the back of this already dying Savior and marched him toward Golgotha's hill one hand one on the other slung him down on the cross drove those nine to six inch spikes through his hands and through his feet raised the cross up and jammed it down in there and looked at him and mocked him and still Jesus was there his responsibility you know he said I came into this world to die that's the reason I'm here so instead of shirking his responsibility he stayed there the nails didn't hold him what you need to realize this morning, friend, is his love for you is what held him there. He realized he had to stay. Precious blood had to be shed. Man should have done it, but he couldn't. Jesus should not have done it, but he could. And so he came, suffered, bled, and died that he might redeem humanity. And sometimes I wonder, and I have done it often, God help me not to do it again. How can I trample the love and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ under my feet? How can I neglect that after he did all this and laid it out for me and said it's as free as coming and taking it? Yet humanity fails to realize. Walk through the Bible sometime. I would challenge you to get a hold of it and, and read it and walk there with him. You know, sometimes we just read it like it's a fairy tale and, and we react to it like it's a fairy tale, but it's not a fairy tale. It is an actual happening. 2,000 years ago, he purchased it. And he could have called 10,000 angels. You know that as well as I do. He said, I could have called legions of angels, 10,000 angels, but he did not. He realized his responsibility and why he was born was to bring salvation to humanity. It was not necessarily to create a day that like we have set aside to honor and commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not why he died. He didn't die to create a day. He died to save a soul. He died to reach down into the depths and pits of, of sin and despair from every one of us. There's not a one of us that has not sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And he did it because he looked down almost 2,000 years from where we are today. And I like to make it as personal as I can. And he looked down into your day and mine and viewed us, that's here at the First Pentecostal Church in Birdseye, Indiana, and said, I need to save them. I need to provide a Savior. Amen. And so he did. And he cried those last words, it is finished. And he said, Father, unto thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. And so he was dead. And so his life's blood had been shed. And so there was no taint of sin. And so it was good blood. It was redemptive blood. Yes. Only thing that could ever salvage man. But here he is, about to be buried. And as we said before, when uh, this morning when you look at it, you have to realize what happens during adversities. We said it this morning, I think it would bear repeating. Sometimes bad times bring out the best and the worst in us. Isn't that right? 
And a man is never known until he faces disappointment what type of a character he is, what his characteristics are. But when we look at that, when Jesus was crucified and then all those vocal disciples, those twelve disciples that followed him, that saw everything that he done, not one of them, not one of them, not single, not one single one of the twelve went to claim his body. They just simply were satisfied to say it's all over. But then some silent follows. Individuals that never say much, individuals that never made a big deal out of being a, a disciple or a follower, came to claim the body of Jesus. One Nicodemus, who had only came to Jesus by night, and one Joseph of Arimathea, which was a member of the synagogue but never consented to the death of Jesus. And Joseph said, we'll put him in my tomb. I want to make this clear again that according to uh, Jewish historian Josephus, that time burial spaces was very limited in Jerusalem, and they still are. You don't dig a grave. You, you hew out something in a rock, and, and there you place them, and they were so limited that only one grave could a man purchase for himself. And Joseph of Arimathea had purchased this sepulcher and this grave, and yet he was willing to put Jesus in his own grave. I said that this morning either he expected to be resurrected or not see death or expected Jesus to raise or he just didn't give it a thought. He just thought this man has been good and in spite of all of that, we're going to give him honor and we're going to give him praise. But there he was buried and they did everything they could to keep him in the grave. Everything. They said, we know this babbler said. <laughs> In other words, they know sometimes more than we who are Christians. He said that on the third day he was going to raise again. And now if he does, then the last error is going to be worse than the first. In other words, he was saying we're going to be in a bigger mess then trying to explain who he is and who he is not than we are now. So I'll tell you what we want. We want a guard and we want a stone sealed and we're going to keep him there. In other words, there he is. But as long as he's placed in there, there's no way anybody could get out of there. Because they put that huge stone there, and I read someplace where that stone supposedly weighed a ton and a half. And yet here's some little women going to, <laughs> going to the grave to anoint the body of Jesus. But nevertheless, there was that huge stone, and then they took a rope and tied it from... One on one side of the stone, pressed it tight and tied it to another side of the stone, and then they put a certain seal, which was a Roman seal, right on there. So if it was disturbed, people would know it was disturbed. And then they placed a guard, not just one or two, but they placed guards around the clock so that nothing could have happened without those guards knowing it. So you see, they had him. There he was. He couldn't get out. <laughs> That's, a man did everything as sure as he could do it. But the surety of man is nothing compared to the surety of God. Jesus had already said, three days and three nights is all I'm staying in there, and when that time comes, I'm coming out. And he was sure of that. And I believe exactly three days and three nights he came out of that tomb. Now, that stone wasn't rolled away to let him out. He had already been out. 
He didn't need the stone rolled away. He had already been out. It was very early in the morning. That was, uh, that was on the Sabbath morning, and very early in the morning, the first day of the week, that was the first day what we call our Sunday. And he was already out. Didn't say he rose then, just said he was out already. Rolled back the stone, the angels sit on it. I like that. <laughs> Hallelujah. I, I like that simply because it shows how little man is compared to God and compared to his mighty power. And regardless of what man does, it doesn't limit God. You know, we've got a lot of individuals are saying that Christ is not coming again and all this is, is hogwash and it's never going to happen and all of this. And I think the Scripture meets that. Whenever it simply says they're, they're going to say <laughs> that things remain just like they did since our fathers fell asleep, nothing has changed. But then Peter says, but the day of the Lord shall come. In other words, he's going to come again regardless of what man says or does, or regardless of whether we're ready for him or not, at the appointed time he's going to come. We need to be looking for him. We need to have our lights burning bright. We need to be under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to accept what he did for us and realize he did it only for us. If we could just imagine, I've said it so often, I want to say it again to me, being raised in a minister's home, I've heard that old Sunday school scripture, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I heard that and I heard that and I heard that, but it made not a dent in my belief because the world is a mass of individuals. It's a mass of people. But when I finally saw and looked at it and said, for God so loved me, that he gave his only begotten son, it meant something. It made me to realize that if I would have been the only man in this planet, he would have died just the same. He was a personal Savior. And so there he was. But exactly three days and three nights, just exactly like he said, buried on Wednesday about sunset. Wednesday was the preparation day. Thursday was the great high Sabbath, which was not the regular uh, weekly Sabbath, which would be two full days beyond this one. The special Sabbath, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, always comes on the 15th of Nisan, regardless of what day of the week it fell on. And at this particular time, it was on Thursday, which we know from our, according to them, our Wednesday at sunset, and our Thursday at sunset. That's when the Jewish days are. And Jesus was buried on Wednesday about sunset. Then the next day was a Passover, or the high Sabbath, which was Thursday. The ladies couldn't break the Sabbath by adding more spices to Jesus' body. Otherwise, that they would. The next day, Friday, was the preparation day for the weekly Sabbath. And then Saturday was the regular Jewish Sabbath, so they couldn't come to attend to the preparation of the body then, but they did come early on Sunday morning. Luke 24, 1 and 3 says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the supper, bringing the spices they had prepared, and certain others with them, and they found the stone rolled away from the supper, and they entered and found not the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words... He was already risen. He had accomplished that we had set forth to do, and no amount of the power of man could forestall what Jesus said he was going to do. And with all of this, suffering, crucified, 
shedding his life's blood. Not one ounce of blood was left in that body. Not one ounce. Whenever they pierced him, which is where any spare blood might have been, when they pierced him, that Bible says, out came blood and water. And so this precious blood was shed. Now, somebody says, why shed the blood? I don't understand these things. All I do is believe them. I don't know why God required blood. But when I had faith enough to believe that He required the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for my salvation, and then in my misery, and in my pain, and in my woe, and in my disappointment, and in my disillusionment, I found I needed someone beside myself. I came to Jesus and he was there and I felt the sins of my life being washed away through the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ I don't understand it but it has happened to me and if it hasn't happened to you it needs to happen to you don't let him die in vain I want to say it again don't let him die for you in vain receive this morning the gift that he paid a great price for and it's redemptive power and it is for you and your children and all that are far off even as many as the Lord our God shall call and so he rose again <laughs> thank God victorious oh it never happened before couldn't have happened before but victorious over death hell and the grave and stands ready to relieve us this morning of our sins, of our iniquities, of our failures, and stands ready to take us by that gentle, nail-scarred hand. <laughs> There's not going to be too much about the body of Jesus that's going to be recognized when we look at him in the kingdom of God other than that which was made by man, which was the nail scars in his hand. We're going to have an identification mark. They're going to be there. They'll be there as long as that body is usable, which will be until the eighth and eternal day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he rose again. Nobody ever believed he would. Not even his closest disciples. He tried his best to get them to see that he was going to suffer for them. And he tried his best to get him to see that it would be a sad time when he was going to raise again. But they didn't believe it. And finally proof came. And the proof came through a woman. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Somebody said this morning, and I had said it before, whenever Pilate was trying to get rid of the body of Jesus or get rid of Jesus, because he didn't want to have to judge him. He didn't listen to the majority and he didn't listen to the minority. <laughs> but he should have listened to his wife. <laughs> but he didn't. Amen. Come on, men, say amen. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's good to listen to your wife. They're right about 20% of the time. <laughs> amen. At least. 20%. Who said 10? Shame on you. <laughs> but there he was. Rose, victorious, living alive.
Yeah, the 